politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight anew for the issues that matter in the way they matter at the time they matter here at CR Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back here today for Thursday, February 8th. It is a quite auspicious date in the calendar. Uh, the love of my life is has been married to me for 15 years to this date. So it is our uh, anniversary. And, you know, as I think about the issues that matter in my life, it's truly hard to find an issue that is more impactful than vaccines. We got four kids, you know, between 2010 and 2020. We had four kids. And, you know, the biggest regret I have in my life is that I unquestionably got all those shots for the kids. And as the studies and the data and the knowledge pile up about the problem with these shots and how much more have we been lied to, how far back, to what extent before COVID, I'm thinking, what is a greater pro life issue? than getting to the bottom of this of the truth on this issue. What should we all be doing with these shots? I mean, I know some of you that obviously have been dealing with this for a while, like, well, Daniel, get none of them ever. And that might be the truth. I don't know. But harking back to what we talked about on, on Tuesday with Dr. Dan Stock, today I want to focus on ways to fight the industry to get to the truth and certainly to get off coercion. And when you fight the issues that matter in the way they matter, it's an all-of-the-above approach. It's an information warfare approach. It's a legislative approach. And, and it's in the courts. I don't, I don't like the courts, but you know where we could find a weakness in the vaccine mandate culture in the schools... We need to expose it. So we're going to have one of our favorite guests coming up soon to discuss uh, what he thinks is potentially a winning strategy, possibly the biggest vaccine case to go to the Supreme Court maybe within the next year. And he's also working on some other cases. So I first want to go down the list and and give you a little bit of an update on what what I'm working on legislatively, information-wise. And uh, let's do a little bit of a give and take that you can take back to your state legislatures. Uh, Just again, I apologize today. I'm a little bit slow, my brain and my voice, just because I'm overcoming this cold I got from from the kids. I I really, I sound worse than I am. I just, uh, just hard to speak. So uh, you'll be done with me soon and we'll have Brian Festa on in a couple moments. Okay, first, West Virginia. Um... H.J. Rez 24, if you want to look this up, my constitutional amendment has been filed again by Delegate Worrell, and this is something that we need to see in every state. Um, If it is not yet too late to introduce a resolution or a bill, try to get this from one of your favorite members in your state, the right of a person to refuse any medical procedure, medical treatment, device, vaccine, or prophylactic shall not be questioned or interfered with in any manner. The right of a person or public accommodation 
uh, to public accommodation and equal protection of the law shall not be denied or infringed upon because of the exercise of the rights contained in this session in the section. So what this will do is, you know, whether it's school employment, all that stuff, you know, at a minimum, as we try to discover how many of these shots are downright problematic, uh, what we do know is that nobody should ever be forced to get them. And again, in most red states, this is not, we are not home yet. And uh, speaking of that, we still have not fully banned mask mandates, even among state and local governments in red states, much less the private sector. So we got Idaho HB 396. Hopefully we'll get a vote on that soon. No state or local mask mandates. We also have an Idaho HB 397, which uh, forces the state, if they uh, immunize your kid or yourself or as an adult, you have to sign a waiver opting into the vaccine registry so they can't automatically track you. And then connected to that, but not with the exclusion of that, um, is we know states have a bunch of data on our vaccination status for better or for worse, um, whether it's full data or whether we do get people to opt out, but there's certainly a lot of people opting in. We had a guest on the show a while back, John Bedouin, who is a smart data guy. And his whole shtick was pairing up death certificate data with ICD-10 codes um, and trying to correlate that to you know vaccine take-up. But what if we had in each state a mandate that the Department of Health track and then publish the data on death certificates, you know, anyone who died, paired against the date of immunization. That would be the game changer to blow this wide open. Now, look, on, on COVID, we have, like I said, we have a million data points. I don't even think we need this. But this is important because I'm just going to tell you, right now, you're never going to get Republicans to touch the other vaccines because, like I said, they're not even fully touching the COVID shots, even at the, at the mandate level in the private sector, much less getting them off the market. And it said, I, I've, I've spoken to some friends of mine in, 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 in various GOP supermajority legislatures, and they'll, they'll tell you, I mean, there's just no appetite. You come down for the hearings, and it looks like California. <laughs> All of the witnesses are a bunch of leftists, and they're, we're just not making any progress. So John Bedouin wrote a bill. I, I forget the author, the the guy who introduced it, you know, because Bedouin's not in the legislature, but it's in New Hampshire, HB sixteen sixty one. Look it up, and I believe this is the best data bill out there. That's not. It's not just a matter of of you know data. It's a matter of changing the entire culture of how we track vaccination, and if we could get this enacted in every state. This, if the safety signals about the other vaccines are as bad as what you know people like Aaron Siri believe, this should vet them out and blow it wide open. So again, we have to fight it in information warfare. We have to fight it in the legislatures, and this does both of them. So HB sixteen sixty one, New Hampshire. Just look it up. It requires <coughs> that every death certificate of an adult have the date 
and info of the vaccines included. So any vaccine they got within two years of death, you know, which vaccine, what was the date, what was the lot number, a couple other you know information, the, the, the dosage, and then for children, any ch- child that dies, it requires all their vaccination. And his idea is, if you were to track that over time, the amount of math equations you could plug in to demonstrate causality is is off the charts. If you are able to then show, because if we are right, I mean, COVID definitely were right. But you know, if people like Aaron Sear are saying, "Look, you know, there are kids, all these cases of SIDS where ten-month-old babies just die, and we've accepted it," or, you know, and it 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 goes on like that, we should be able to see that signal, and that is the way. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry to blow this wide open. <clears throat> so they have to track that on the death certificates. Then every quarter, the Department of Health has to tabulate tabulate those total deaths, <clears throat> meaning how many people died with um after having gotten a vaccine within a day, within three days, within three weeks, within ten weeks, twenty five weeks, and one year after getting a vaccine. And then they put out a quarter, quarterly report. He has another requirement for for a you know annual report. <laughs> That's uh, just real short form. Maybe we'll, we'll we'll get him back on the show soon. But New Hampshire HB sixteen sixty one. So you know, obviously, Republicans are not going to want to readily go into other vaccines. But this is the way to track it. How could you oppose this if they are that safe and effective? you should not see any strong signal correlating deaths with, uh, you know, immunization dates. But this is what any sane country and state would do. This is a pro-life bill. We have people dying left and right, okay? I mean, the, the signals are off the charts. Off the charts. Um, this is from Bloomberg. The UK saw an unusual spike in middle-aged deaths. <laughs> um, 40 to 44-year-old mortality was the worst for the first half of 2023. Number of age standardized deaths per 100,000 rose 6% in the same period following two years of declines. So that can't be the, the COVID uh, virus because it's too late in the game. We have tons of these data points. This is now public knowledge. Everyone agrees that young people are just dropping dead. I don't understand. We, we created a movement for 60 years. Now, it's, it's starting to wane now. They're going back the other way. But generally, most mainstream Republicans are very strong into abortion. And every legislative session of my lifetime has always been about abortion. But here's the deal. Nobody is encouraging you and certainly mandating you to get get an abortion. None of you listening to this show are going to get an abortion. I'm not saying we shouldn't ban it. I'm just saying that if you believe that we should put in so much political capital into this issue by a factor of a million, this is mandated. I mean, a friend of mine just had to in healthcare to get a flu shot. There's dozens of studies showing it tamps down your cellular immunity. That's a life issue. We need to get to the bottom of this once and for all. 
And I believe that John Bedouin, and I really applaud him for not just, you know, kind of you know, playing around with data, but actually trying to get change. It's New Hampshire, HP 1661. <laughs> this is really where it's at. And, um, you know, this, this is something that we need in every state. So I want you guys to look it up and you'll see it's written very simply, exactly the sort of data that is expected of whatever the State Department of Health is that keeps track of the death certificates and then to tabulate it and publish it. This is the way it goes. I, I, I want to get into a couple other things, um, just news on this on the vaccines before we uh, have our guest on. First, today's show is sponsored by our friends at Fume. That's F-U-M. <laughs> so a lot of people, if you're like me, that you work from home and you're constantly dealing with stress and you're pacing the floors, you often like to hold things in your hand and then put it in your mouth. And it could be smoking, it could be eating, I know I started to gain weight because I was just needlessly have, feeling the need to eat. Fume is a real innovative, award-winning flavored air device that literally gives you take, turns a bad habit into a good habit. Instead of vapor, Fume uses flavored air. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural. And instead of harmful chemicals, Fume uses delicious uh, flavors. Um, you go to tryfume.com slash CR and you get their journey pack today. Their pack has, um, you know, it's 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 a nice wooden feel. It's like a piece of wood. And it, it feels nice for those who need that tactile feel. Uh, perfectly well weighted and balanced. Fun to fidget with. Um, the taste is delicious as all these um, flavors from herbal tea uh, to uh, to all, all sorts of... Um, naturally sweet flavors that feel really, really good. Um, again, it's vapor. This is not vaping. It's 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 uh, it's a hundred percent safe. Um, it also looks beautiful. So feels, looks great, tastes great. Um, and uh, there's all sorts of new flavors that I have in my box that I haven't finished yet. Uh, so for those of you looking to to just change these bad habits of idling, nervous habits. It's really an innovative idea that I endorse fully. So start the year off right with a good habit by going to Trifume. That's, by the way, T-R-Y-F-U-M dot com slash C-R, no E at the end, um, and getting the journey pack. Fume is giving listeners of this show 10% off when they use my promo code C-R. So it's Trifume dot com slash C-R, promo code C-R. The good habit is so much easier to start today with our friends at Fume. Iger Chudov, uh, Terrific Substack. Uh, he has a lot of great information there. He looked at the first 40 weeks of excess death in all of the OECD countries, so mainly America and Europe, by vaccination rate. First 40 weeks of excess deaths of 2023. Okay, so basically the first three quarters of last year juxtaposed the vaccination rate. And it turns out that the COVID-19 vaccination rates are associated with an increased mortality of 25%. And, you know, remember, you can't just say, oh, you know, a lot of people die on a cloudy day. But when you have that many countries with that many data points, he has a p-value of 0.0131. Okay? So that's... um you know, less than one in a thousand chance of that being, you know, by natural 
chance as opposed to having some sort of strong signal there. If you look up in uh, academic research, that's borderline between strong and very strong correlation. So, you know, again, I mean, this is something we've said before. As of last year, the best study we had from Rankert in Canada was likely 18 million deaths. But, you know, when you look at the long-term diabetes exasperation, exacerbation, the long-term uh, immune suppression, autoimmune, and uh, <clears throat> God knows what else, and then now the cancers, this is just the opening act. That's just the short-term cost of this. Uh, the Heart Group, our friends at the UK, we've had some of their uh, researchers on the show before, they found that calls to ambulances in the UK for life-threatening conditions were stable at about 2,000 per day, actually went down during lockdowns, but then during the rollout of the vaccine, they ro rose to 2,500 per day and have remained at that level since. And they make it very clear the correlations with the vaccines, not with the take-up of COVID itself, which, of course, was a bioweapon uh, forcibly unleashed upon us as well. One other study I want to get to before we get to Brian is Alberto uh, Beretti of the Melbourne Institute of Technology. Those of you who want a good paper to pass around to people explaining what the vaccine does to your immune system, it's really in a way that laymen could understand, like people like us could read it. It reads very, very easily. It's published in the Clinical and Experimental Medicine. That's the journal. And if you want to type it in, so Beretti. And the title is mRNA Vaccine Boosters and Impaired Immune System Response in Immune Compromised Individuals, a narrative review. It's just a great summary of all the ways the shot destroys your immune system and makes you more vulnerable to cancer, tamps down your T-cells, um, and it, you know your interferon signaling, which is basically the communication system of your immune system, <laughs> you know, what to respond in, in the right way. It's kind of like if you took out the FAA control towers at, at an airport, you know, the chaos that would ensue, that's what's happening to people's bodies. So again, that is a study you want to bookmark, pass around to anyone you know. Um, and, and, and it's endless. I mean, I, I could do shows every day. We obviously had to move on to other issues, but every once in a while, I want to get back to this. Because there is nothing killing more people than the COVID shots. But, you know, when a, when, when a lot of people who are dead right on COVID were also telling us that, you know, people like Aaron Siri, Aaron Siri, the scariest thing that he ever said on this show was that, Daniel, this is not the first time we've been lied to. The clinical trials were even more corrupted with the other shots. And this shot was given to all children and adults in one shot, so they couldn't cover it up. But what about shots that are mainly given to babies, and, and they're staggered by the birth of the baby? It's not like you, know, you have everyone getting a shot in one period. How do you track that if government is covering it up? How do you have a baby tell you, I just don't feel the same? You don't even have a baseline, and the baby couldn't tell you about it anyway. That was a real scary thought. I so badly want that not to be true. 
you know, that there's anywhere near these sorts of problems with these other shots. I mean, we already know the respiratory viral ones for sure there are. We know Gardasil for sure. We've seen the signals in VAERS. But folks, this bill, HB 1661 in New Hampshire, I think is the first step to vetting that out. And obviously, we got to at least push medical freedom that will foster a climate of A, evacuating ourselves from mandates, and then B, uh, inducing more knowledge in the culture that we could start getting to the bottom of this. But then there's also the courts. And that leads me to our next guest and the main part of today's show. So Brian Festa is among my favorite people on planet Earth. Brian has been a guest of the show uh, many times of We the Patriots USA, a legal defense group that is really for the forgotten man. Obviously, he's been very into religious liberty, medical freedom um, throughout COVID when people had nobody to turn to, couldn't get attorneys. Um, people forgotten by the system, people targeted by the system. But they don't stop there. I mean, they've been doing all sorts of cases. We obviously had uh, you know, one of his cases in our book, Rise of the Fourth Reich, with a family that you know had their daughter denied a kidney transplant on account of not getting vaccines. And they're now on to Second Amendment cases, all sorts of cases where human rights constitutional rights are being violated. Now, you know, I am not a fan of the court system. I'm, I'm kind of very down on it and, and our, our options and likelihood of succeeding on different things. But Brian called me earlier this week, and he's really bullish about the ability to use religious liberty, that angle, that chink in the armor to collapse uh, the biomedical fascist mandate edifice. Um, you know, w- we could say all we want that putting aside religion, that a government should never have the right to mandate products on your body, and we'd be right about that. But what he's trying to do strategically with this issue, the vaccine issue, but as we're going to see also, some of the other issues as well that rope in the, the transgender stuff is to use religious liberty is one of the strongest um, jurisprudence we have in the federal court system, particularly among you know at least five to six Supreme Court justices who are currently on the court. It's been some cases recently uh, that they've been very strong on that. And what he's doing is strategically using that to you know, help people that are struggling with vaccine mandates that I know a lot of you guys are. And there's this case in Connecticut now that might be the most auspicious case we have to get to the Supreme Court to overturn these mandates. Some of these blue states have gone back to uh, denying religious exemptions, and Connecticut is one of them. And Brian has a case that might be pretty close to going to the Supreme Court um, and he is with us today. Again, we the Patriots USA.org. We the Patriots USA.org. You know, guys, I do not recommend too many organizations. They sit in grift. This is one that has product to show for it. So donate generously. Um, but I want to get to some of their cases. Hey, Brian, it's been way too long. Thanks so much for contacting me and informing me about this. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Daniel. I am so happy to be back and excited to talk about all these things with you today. 
All right. Well, I talk talk you must because my voice is messed up, my nose is stuffed, and we have this Connecticut case. Now, I have watched a lot of bad circuit rulings like we had here with the Second Circuit saying that Connecticut could deny religious exemptions to their vaccine mandates in school. I've watched a lot of these cases where I do not see the Supreme Court granting an appeal and you have bad ruling stand. It's been very frustrating. Why are you confident or optimistic about this case? And why is this case so important? Yeah, well, I mean, to start, uh, this is the closest we've ever come to Supreme Court review on this issue. And I think it's in large part due to the fact that Connecticut did this so foolishly, right? So in California, New York, and Maine, and the other states that have repealed religious exemptions uh, to mandatory school vaccinations, uh, they didn't um, grandfather in this large swath of students. In Connecticut, it was some 8,500 students that they left the religious exemption in place for. Now, that sounds like a great thing. So if you had one already on file, you continue sending your kids to school. But when you dug deeper into it, it was really foolish and, and was really a horrible thing, especially for families that were still having children or who had children that were too young to attend school yet. So you had, okay, your older brother or sister could go to school, but now, you know, little Susie or, or Billy or something couldn't attend school, right? Um, and, and so that was really dividing families. But then also it exposed the Connecticut legislature's lie, which was that there was a public health crisis in Connecticut that warranted eliminating the religious exemption or that was caused by too many people using the religious exemption. Connecticut had among the highest, still does, uh, but even at the time this was uh, repealed in 2021, April of 21, had among the highest vaccination rates uh, for MMR in the country. And that was the main one they focused in on. They zeroed in on the MMR. They're worried about measles outbreaks. We don't want to be like Disneyland in California in 2015. They were so worried about that, supposedly, that they needed to eliminate the religious exemption. But when you break down the data, there was zero. Number one, there had been no outbreaks of measles uh, like that, like anything like California or even Rockland County in New York or any of these other areas had seen. But also, there was no evidence that religious exemption use was causing any kind of disease at all. And, and never mind just measles, but a any kind of uh, what they call vaccine-preventable illnesses uh, in Connecticut. So if you grandfather in 8,500 students, they call it a legacy exemption because I guess it's not politically correct to say grandfather anymore for some reason. But this legacy exemption, there's 8,500 students. How can you say with a straight face that there's a public health crisis, that there's a compelling government interest here, which is what's required under strict scrutiny in the First Amendment? I'll talk about that in a moment. We have to get there first. But they have nowhere to go. There's no way they can prove that there was a compelling government interest here because there was no public health crisis. And then even if they were able to prove that, they'd have to show that they solved their problem, they addressed this compelling government interest by what's called the least restrictive means under the law. Well, kicking kids out of school isn't the least restrictive means. There would be plenty of other ways. And they didn't even look at the kids who just didn't have their paperwork turned in. So there were actually more children in Connecticut than used the religious exemption that just never, their parents just never turned in paperwork for them. They were just what's called non-compliant. 
They didn't do anything to law to address those. So it just their argument is just not based in any shred of logic, completely falls apart. But what they're using is this other case called Employment Division v. Smith, uh, which was redefined um, and, and addressed sort of sidestepped sort of actually in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. And I can talk about that in a minute if you'd like. Yeah. But they're, they're using that case. To, to get around uh, the First Amendment so that they don't have to be examined under strict scrutiny, because if they are, they're going to lose. Now, what's really important, what gives me hope, that was the second part of your question, what gives you gives me hope that the Supreme Court might actually take this up and examine this case, is that just on Monday, so whatever that was, three days ago, Monday of this week, the Supreme Court ordered the state of Connecticut to respond to our cert petition the petition that we filed with the the court. Why is that? Yeah, why is that uh, remarkable? Really, yeah, why is that remarkable? Well, number one, they don't usually do that. So that's fairly uncommon. It's not unheard of, but it's fairly uncommon that they request a response. Most cases, there, just so your audience knows, there are about seven to 8,000 cert petitions filed to the United States Supreme Court every year. Out of that you know, 7,500 or so cases, only about 80 cases, about 1% actually get taken by the Supreme Court. Um, most end up on just what's called a dead list. They don't even get discussed. They don't even get put to a vote. Uh, if they're taking the time to request that the state respond, because in, in this case, the state waived its response, which is a strategy that gov the government will often use to try to hint to the court, this isn't worth our time. It's a frivolous case and you shouldn't spend your time on it either. So the state had waived its response in this case. But the fact that at least one justice um, feels that this is important enough that we need the uh, state to actually file a response is very encouraging because it means that it's being looked at carefully and actually being considered most likely for discussion and or a vote. Um, and that's a huge hurdle. If you can get yep. to the discuss list, which is what they call it, the discuss list, and actually have the justice discuss it and put it to a vote, your chances of getting it taken go up exponentially. So we've never had a case involving religious exemptions in schools uh, get to this point, this particular issue about religious exemptions for vaccinations. We've never had a case in all the years I've been fighting for medical freedom and my predecessors for decades really um, have been fighting to preserve school exemptions. I mean, I did this long before I even had We the Patriots. I was fighting at state houses. Uh, to preserve religious exemptions, because as you know, my son was critically injured by a vaccine. So um, we've, in all the years I've been involved in it, we've never had a case get this close to the Supreme Court. So this is why we need everybody behind this. Any lawyers or organizations out there that want to file an amicus brief, that's a friend of the court brief, basically showing that you support our, our position, you now have until March 6th. So previously the deadline passed, and I think it was January 15th, but now that they've opened it up for a response, the government has to respond by March 6th. That means anyone who wants to file a brief in support of our position has until March 6th to do so. So you have some time here, folks, and that's extremely important because if we get a lot of briefs on our side, that's also going to increase our chances of them voting to take our case. Now, to, to be clear, obviously, this case doesn't necessarily tee up. Uh, a, a potential outcome of overturning Jacobson, the notion that from a police power of the state that they can medically force you to to get a uh, a vaccine. And 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 by the way, just 
you know, as a side note there, even if we accept Jacobson, there is what to say on that, that that was just a small fine back there, you know, 100 years ago. But what we're dealing with today is denying employment, denying schooling, which is much more of a graver consequence. Um, but it, it won't necessarily mean they'll judge on any of those questions. But what it does mean is that we could preserve a religious exemption. So my question to you is, what what's the likelihood that if you would get them to take it up and you got a good ruling, that it would be a plenary sort of escape hatch for people that don't like vaccines versus maybe they'll be like, all right, fine. Okay, you could have religious exemption. But then they're going to say, I need it signed by this sort of religious leader with this sort of rationale, you know, and they make it very difficult. Yeah, well, you can't unduly burden uh, your free exercise of religion because that's the First Amendment, right? The first clause of the First Amendment that Congress um, can't, you know, put any kind of burden, can't infringe upon religion, the free exercise of religion. So once they start putting all those kinds of conditions and restrictions on it, that would become unconstitutional in my view. Uh, the chance that we get a plenary decision that's going to apply across the board, um, if they take this case, if they decide to review it, I think it, the chances are pretty good for that because even if the decision is written just to address Connecticut's repeal of the religious exemption, it will open up doors. I guarantee you, five minutes after this decision is issued, we get a victory, say, hypothetically, five minutes after you'll have lawyers filing cases in Connecticut, New York, and Maine, using our case as a precedent to overturn their religious exemption repeal, and they'll win. They'll very clearly win, because if the high court rules that it was unconstitutional, that it was a violation of the First Amendment, um, a violation of religious freedom for Connecticut to deny religious exemptions to school children for vaccinations, then you really won't have a case to do it in any state anymore. Um, and then our case will also be used in the employment context because they'll say, uh, number one, Title VII already forbids, that's federal law apart from the Constitution, forbids religious discrimination in the workplace, which should have been enough. But as you saw during COVID, all these employers just completely ignored Title VII. But now if you have a case to say it's also unconstitutional, then certainly, especially with regard to any um, you know, public employers, any government employers, government yeah. contractors, anyone, um, you, you'll have to allow religious exemptions to vaccination. So uh, these government mandates really start to lose their teeth then because you see most of us do have sincere religious objections. You know, whether it's aborted fetal tissue being used in the testing and production, whether it's because of other kinds of animal DNA, uh, other kinds of uh, toxins that are in, and we don't believe in putting toxins in our bodies. It's formaldehyde, you know, you're talking about heavy metals, I and mean, the list goes on and on and on. You know, you've researched this like I have. Um, there's just a plethora of religious, sincere religious reasons to, for most people to refuse these. Now, am I with you that there should not be mandates in the first place and that Jacobson was a bad sure. decision? Yes. But do I see them, you know, fully overturning Jacobson anytime in the near future? No. Um, they still want to hold on to that power. Uh, they still will endorse the government's, you know, p police power, as it's called, as you correctly noted. Um, to issue public health mandates. But as long as we have, as you call it, an escape hatch of religious freedom, re religious liberty that's still respected in this country, um, then we're still living in a free country, in my opinion. Um, I know some will disagree with that and say just the mandates are unconstitutional. But you can say that till you're blue in the face. The Supreme Court doesn't say that. They're not going to say that. 
So we have to be realistic and find a strategy that's going to actually win. So, so why are you so people, confident that yeah. this strategy, you're, you're confident that the religious liberty jurisprudence already on the table from some of these same justices would dictate this outcome? So let's say, for example, because this is really the most common problem we have, I get from a lot of people, it's medical schools, it's the hospitals, um, nurses, doctors. I mean, the med- medical profession really is the big problem now where the states are saying you got to get um, all sorts of shots, flu shots. I have a friend of mine who who just texted me all upset. He got the flu shot and he's been out with the flu for for uh, you know four days, um, but he works in the medical field. That's really where this is very applicable. So why are you confident that the religious liberty jurisprudence of say that Fulton case with, uh, you know, Catholic adoptions from Philadelphia, and, and I want you to discuss that would overpower what they'll say is, look, the state interest of people working in the sacred healthcare field, and you don't want those ewy disease-ridden people, you know, because of course the flu shot with its fourteen percent efficacy, according to CDC, you know, is just going to stop that. Um, but that's what they'll say that in a medical profession, there's going to be a real heavy-duty state interest. Why wouldn't that interest be able to sur- survive um, an assertion of a religious liberty right? Well, I've already seen signals from the Supreme Court that we're very close to um, getting uh, this kind of case heard, but also getting a huge victory, uh, in particular for healthcare workers, actually. Our New York healthcare workers case, many people forget, we were the first ones, or among, I think, we may have filed within minutes of another organization, but we were the first or among the first to file a lawsuit when Kathy Hochul in New York issued her uh, you know, tyrannical, unconstitutional edict that there would be no religious exemptions for healthcare workers. Like she just stated unequivocally, if you're a healthcare worker, you're not getting a religious exemption, right? We said, okay, well, that's obviously a First Amendment violation. You're, this, is the, this is the government saying you can't have a religious freedom. We filed that case that on an emergency petition. It got to the Supreme Court, and Justices Gorsuch, Alito, and Thomas would have ruled to take it and review it. Um, and you know they, uh, you know, apparently were were on our side. It was just we just needed one more vote. You need four votes to get Supreme Court review. You don't need a majority. You just need four. Um, so we and that was what three years ago now almost. And we, because that was, I think actually it was the fall of 21. So yeah, it was three, you know, two and a half going on three years ago. And even back then, we, we didn't know nearly as much as what we know about the COVID shots and COVID itself and its transmission and everything. We had three justices uh, that we saw were, were pretty clearly on our side, or at least wanted to review this and, and wanted to, to give us, um, you know, emergency review. Uh, now this case comes along, this Connecticut case, And luckily, that regulation, what ended up happening is our case ended up essentially becoming moot because they did away with that regulation in New York in the meantime, while it was playing its way out to the the district court. But in the meantime, we have this Connecticut case that we've been fighting since April of 21. And this has gone through all the procedural, you know, safeguards that the justices like. They don't like taking a lot of emergency appeals. They like a case to go through, to percolate through the system the normal way with, you know, hearing, full hearings and pleadings and briefs filed. Well, this case, here you have it. Now we've got this Connecticut school religious exemption case, and we brought it through the district court. 
We went to the Second Circuit. It's another reason we're, we're pretty confident about this one. We got a dissenting opinion, which is a huge victory. People think, oh, big deal. You got one judge to agree with you. No, 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 you don't understand. These three judge panels in a state in, a, in the Second Circuit, you know, we're talking about Connecticut, New York, okay, Vermont. This is the Second Circuit. And we got one out of the three justices yeah. to agree with us. Very judge liberal Judge circuit. Bianco. Uh, judge Bianco. And so now we sort of rode the coattails of that dissent and filed this petition. As soon as that dissent came out, we were getting calls, Daniel, from firms. I'm not going to name specific names of attorneys. They may not want me to disclose it. But very well-known attorneys who have argued and won many cases at the Supreme Court. And they were calling us because wow. this was on their radar. By the way, that's saying a lot dissent. because – because, you know, no pun intended, th- you, you guys are like disease-ridden legal folks. Typically, it, it's not like there's a big alacrity for the legal profession to embrace uh, anything that has to do with looking like you don't like vaccines. Um, right. So that is very telling in terms of you're saying, in terms of th- what the legal profession gauges as a likely path to success. Um, now, I just want to see how far we could take this. Before, because I want to move on to your next case, which is is built off the same principle. But what about private? So, is there any avenue that any of the religious liberty jurisprudence that that we have from the Supreme Court so far could go the extra mile and and maybe you know so some some hospitals sometimes they have the state mandate, but sometimes they're privately owned hospitals that have their own mandates on doctors or other employers. Is there any way you think we'd be able to squeeze religious exemption into the private sector? Yes. So I mentioned already Title VII. Title VII was created to protect all employees, public and private, from religious discrimination. Um, Unfortunately, it has been misapplied, in my opinion, by many courts across the country uh, who have not um, recognized the importance and the um, that the language in Title VII gives that full protection. But I think here's a ray of hope. I think that's changing now because I'm seeing it changing ever since last year's decision, the Groff case, if you remember, out of the, the Supreme Court last June. Um, it was um, a case, a religious exemption uh, in the workplace case, religious accommodations in the workplace where they changed, the Supreme Court changed the standard. So the standard used to be that if all the employer had to say, well, that this is another reason I'm hopeful for our case, Daniel. I keep thinking of reasons as we're talking. Um, in the Groff case, they said, well, the previous standard was that anything, a case named Hardison, the previous standard was anything more than a minimal burden. So anything more than de minimis, uh, all the employer had to say is that it would, it would be more than a minimal burden, therefore we can deny your religious accommodation request. It would be more than a minimal burden, but no. Now in Groff, they said that doesn't fly anymore. Employers now have to prove that it would be a substantial burden, which means in most cases, a substantial financial burden on them. So when you're dealing with a huge company like Microsoft, Google, uh, the PGA Tour, we have a case against them, Walmart, whatever it may be, you have to show that it would be a substantial financial burden to you. Well, how... (laughs) How many religious accommodation requests are going to present a substantial financial burden to a company like Microsoft? Well, what if they say, well, you know, in their mind, it would create disease, you know, and get everyone sick and they can't work. Right. But they would have to prove that, though, because there's a burden of proof now. Uh They're not just giving they're not just giving them a free pass. Um, The Groff case, if you haven't read it, go back and look at it. I encourage anyone who's listening to go back and read it. 
uh, Groff versus DeJoy, I believe is the full case name. And it was from June, released in June of last year, 23. So, so in, in other words, what you're doing is you're playing this smart. Again, a lot of us should be like, well, you know, they shouldn't have this power at all. And it's true. But the reality is what you're doing is you're taking our strongest argument that is is even even with my pessimistic view, it's one of the positive trajectories, especially in the Supreme Court on the religious liberty front. I think that that's a change we have seen. Um, with the the three Trump appointees, you know, replacing uh, like like Anthony Kennedy, for for example, we have seen a change there. And you're saying we could use that to potentially collapse um, vaccine mandates, and 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 you know, this would be a public one, but potentially maybe even private, um, especially with employment, Title Seven. Okay, I want to get to your next case, which is a little different, but but off the same principle. And, and again, I mean, so many people come to you that are just wronged by our government or society. You have a Oakland, California teacher who was fired for not uh, using transgender pronouns in a kindergarten. And again, you're you're taking this straight to federal court, not state court, because anything with that, you know, religious liberty, it's First Amendment. Take it to federal. And you believe that, you know, while I have expressed disappointment on, you know, some of the cert petitions with transgender cases, drag shows, things like that. But you think, again, that religious liberty could be an avenue to fight back against this agenda. So this, describe some, describe the case and then, you know, what, where, where you want to head with it. Sure. So Mir- Mirella Ramirez is a kindergarten teacher, um, or was, I should say, a kindergarten teacher in the Oakland Unified School District. So this is the public schools of Oakland, California. So it's important that I note that because we're talking about a state actor, a government uh, agency, essentially. That's what public schools are. Um, and she had a student in one of her classes, a five-year-old female student, okay, who wanted to transition to a boy. And the parents... Uh, supported this transition and told the school administration that they wanted their daughter to transition and that all teachers must start referring her to referring to her as a male now as a boy using a boy's name boy pronouns all of that the problem for Mirella is first and foremost she's a devout catholic and is strongly opposed to the idea of gender transitioning she believes like you and I do, Daniel, that God created male and female, as it says in Genesis, right? Um, there's there's two genders, two sexes, that's it. Um, and you don't transition back and forth between one and the other. So she said, well, that'd be a violation of my religion, my faith, my, my deeply held beliefs to start calling a, a girl a boy. I, I can't do that. Then I'm participating in it. And that's evil. I'm not allowed to do that. That's That would be violating my religion. They said, no, you're going to do it or you'll be fired. Um, and so she was initially placed on administrative leave for like a year. So we've known about this case for over a year. She first contacted us. Uh, but the reason it's finally coming to a head now is they're finally finalizing her termination. She had her final hearing, I think just last week or maybe the week before with the union. And she's in the final stages of being terminated. Now we've already agreed to take on her case and are getting already preparing our pleadings to be filed, as you said, um, in federal court. Uh, and with the EEOC initially, because we need to have, um, we need to protect our religious freedom. She's, uh, this is not only religious freedom, this case is about freedom of speech as well. Because what the government is essentially saying is that we can compel your speech too. Not only 
can we compel you to violate your religious beliefs? We can compel you to use speech that's offensive to you. And as we know, compelled speech, you know, or, or a content-based speech restriction, either one, is a violation of the First Amendment. There's tons of cases. Yeah, we saw that with okay, e- even, even forced union dues, which wasn't even direct, like as direct as this. Janice, right. Yeah, the Janice right. case. That, and in that. this case, you're literally saying, I want you to cough out those absurd words. And by the way, just as a, as a funny aside here, isn't this a bilingual Spanish-speaking um, kindergarten? Yes. Yes, it's, it's a dual immersion class. So Mirella is um, a Spanish speaker, but she's a Spanish te- Spanish and English teacher. So she has to, as you know, in Spanish, she'd have to change. There's masculine and feminine, not only with regard to pronouns, but even even verbs and other <laughs> you know adjectives and things like that. So it'd be extremely confusing and a har- talk about an undue burden and a hardship. Uh, it would be a hardship on her to have to do that in her classroom. So. Um, you know, they wouldn't provide her with a religious accommodation. She asked, you know, is there some other class that teachers or some other class that the student could be in even? Can the student, there's more than one kindergarten class in Oakland. Oakland's huge. You know, we're talking about the Bay Area. All right. This is not a tiny little town. Um, there's plenty of other class, kindergarten classes this child could have gone to, but they, no, they couldn't accommodate her. They were forcing her to do this. And, and what's laughable about it, Daniel, they cited the California Education Code. So they look at Education Code section 220 of the California Education Code, which states that it's against the law to discriminate in a school on the basis of gender identity. But guess what it also states? It's against the law in a school to discriminate on the basis of religion. So, so in other words, <laughs> what you're trying part. to do is read the gender identity part. you fight the identity politics. Again, whether our guys philosophically, we would in a perfect world want to do this, your job as a lawyer to help people out, you're saying, all right, well, you know, we religious liberty, we have that in the First Amendment, fight back with that. And you're doing that both with this transgender stuff as well as the vaccine mandate. And, um, you know, you got to think smart. And, and, and I think I think you're right. This is really is we have the best jurisprudence on that issue. Um, man, this went by too, too fast. Again, we the Patriots USA.org. You're taking on so many cases. Um, I know you're dealing with that New Mexico gun control case. A lot of different cases. And folks, email me, Daniel Horowitz at starmail.com. If you if you need a lawyer on some, you know similar cases, uh, there are a few places to go. I know you guys definitely need money. So if you want to donate, definitely go there. But there's one other project. You're, you're just all over the map here. I don't know how you guys have the time for this. But in addition to the legal stuff with the vaccines, I, I got to give you a shout out. I'm starting to watch this and I'm sick to my stomach watching it, but you need to watch it. Send around shotdead.org. Shotdead.org. That is the title of your uh, of a documentary that we the Patriots just put out. Describe that doc- documentary, why it's important. So this is absolutely heartbreaking. It was the hardest project I was ever involved in. I've been involved in a lot of heartbreaking projects, but um, it's the story. Shot Dead tells the stories of three children who lost their lives tragically to the COVID shot as told by their parents. So we go, this is the only documentary that's ever examined uh, the deeply personal aspect of loss from these COVID shots. So we go into the homes into the parents' homes. We sit with them in the living room. We go into their children's bedrooms. We go to the children's grave sites. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely heartbreaking, gut-wrenching to watch it. So have your tissues ready, but everybody needs to watch it and share it because 
we need to save lives. You know, actually, we've already had people reach out uh, to us or to um, the family members that are featured in the film and said, thank you so much for making this. Um, you know, I'm not going to get the shot now. I'm not going to get, you know, they're considering getting the shot for their, their children to attend college because, you know, their child, their son or daughter has worked 12, 13 years, whatever it is, to get into finally an Ivy League school, Harvard, Yale, whatever. And they were considering getting in the shot because it's a, it's a requirement and now they're not going to do it. They probably, we may have saved their child's life um, or at the very least saved them from a very debilitating disability. Um, so this is huge. This film is, is huge. It was just featured as an official selection this past weekend at the 2024 Santa Monica International Film Festival, which we were just floored and honored. <laughs> that, How did they allow you um, in? That they would even allow us in, right? This is a Hollywood <laughs> area. This is outside, of, right outside of LA, right? And they're allowing this. So eyes are opening. That's what's encouraging for me is that even in that area of the country, I mean, I can't think of many areas that were worse in terms of mandates than California, Southern California. Um, you know, maybe New York, maybe a few other places, but really, I mean, that was the epicenter during during COVID, right? So it's so important. And we are exploring litigation to try to fight for the families as well. That's a whole nother topic for another show, but we do need donations. I'm glad you mentioned that because the only reason I know you're sitting there in amazement at all we're doing, the only reason we're able to do anything is with the support of our donors. And, you know, as you said, we're very transparent. We, um, you can see all of our court filings. We put our money where our mouths are. Uh, there's no grifting going on here. We have an extremely, we keep our staff very, very small. Uh, we would like to grow it at some point, but right now, um, the money needs to be going primarily to help people, to help these families, these victims. Uh, Mirella Ramirez, you just, we just talked about her. She's got a fund on our web webpage. Uh, we don't have very much in there yet, but we need to raise money because, uh, last year was a tough year with Bidenomics, with this planned orchestrated economic downturn. Um, last year was a really, really tough year for us in terms of fundraising. So we didn't get, wow. even though we did great things, we did more than we've ever done before. Our funding was the lowest it's ever been. So we really do need people to get behind us because we can't, you know, we can't survive forever just, you know, front loading uh, yeah. these lawsuits. No, I mean, the hours it takes back. to put together the briefs and and obviously in a way that it's not just frivolous, but that you want to get somewhere. We the Patriots USA.org and you could donate specifically to Morella. Um, a woman standing up to this, it would be so easy to just keep your job and you know go along with this nonsense. But she stood up for that, and you're standing up for those people. And again, the 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 film is free. Shotdead.org. Uh, you know, it's a little over an hour. Go watch it. It's heartbreaking, but pass it around to your friends, relatives. If you you know have a case, uh, let me know about it. Again, email me Daniel Hurwitz at starmail.com. And 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 that's the thing. The truth about vaccines. It's it's an information warfare. It's legislative. Um, you're picking a court angle, particularly with religious liberty. And then there's the storytelling, the storytelling, the emotion, uh, which the left uh, uh, preens on so well. And, and we, we've we not done such a good job of that. So I think that that's what you're doing, shotdead.org. That's what today is all about, using all the tools that God has given us. There aren't that many, but the ones that we have to fight back against this just demonic system that needs to be exposed and, and starting with certainly uh, at least freedom, no mandate. So, Brian, I applaud you for your work. May God really bless your work and may your house increase. And, folks, uh, all of you, thank you for listening. If you have any question for Brian, email me. Until um, tomorrow, God bless you all, and thank you for listening. 